Well, good morning. I want to welcome you all to South Coast this morning. Thank you for braving the third Sunday in a row of rain. I mean, what gives? It rains every Sunday. But uh, weeks are beautiful when we're at work, and then when we get the weekend off, it rains on us. So, you know, God has something for us, and we're excited for that. I want to welcome my LaGrange campus. So, guys, you guys are joining us. Miss you all this morning. I also want to welcome all of those watching online, wherever you may be. But today, we are kicking off a brand new series called Crazy Stupid Love. And uh, before I get too far, though, I want to take a quick poll of the congregation. Uh, for my benefit and the staff, just, just so we have some basic information on you. If, if you are married uh, today, if you are married, uh, would you please stand? Both campuses, the Grange, at home, wherever you are, stand up. Doesn't matter if your spouse is here or not. If they're not here, it's fine. Y'all stand up. Wow, that, that's, that's great to see. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. If you would be seated. Um, and now uh, the, the other part of the poll I would like, if you are not married, if you are single, uh, whatever situation that is, no matter what age you are, teenager, whatever, if you would please stand. Anyone who, who is single in this room, uh, again, um, and please stay standing. Uh, please stay standing. Um, um, now, all I want all of you to, to look around. Every, everybody look around. Okay. Okay. You know, uh, maybe you won't be single at the end of this year. Just maybe there can be a love connection today. Um, if you're in the Grange, my daughter's off limits, okay? Otherwise, y'all are good. All right, thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, we got to start it off right, um, you know, but the focus of this series is marriage, but it's for everyone in here today. Uh, if you're in the group that just stood, the single group, um, you're going to hear very important truth throughout this series they're going to help you as you get married. You know, many of us who are parents, we always say it would have been great if someone would have told us before we had children how to have children. And so with marriage, we can do that right now. We can give you some insight. You can learn from some of our mistakes and hopefully not make those as you get married. If, if you are married, the whole point of doing this is to strengthen your marriages. It's to help you go a little bit away, a little bit stronger than when you came. You know, I can remember the day that I proposed to Angie. It was August 7th, 1999. Now, I had the perfect day planned, culminating in a hot air balloon ride. So needless to say, she was pleasantly surprised when, when the balloon showed up and we got to go on that ride. I remember that ride being so much fun. Uh, I remember a man uh, stopped his truck on a county road, and he and his son hopped out of the truck, and they sat and just watched us as we went on by. Uh, we would fly over people's homes, and they would come out of their home and just sit on the porch and wave and, and just really enjoy it. As we were going over the country, you'd see horses and, and deer down below just kind of running. It was, it was so cool, and everybody we passed and saw seemed to enjoy it just as much as we were enjoying it. I mean, it was, it was something that seemed to make everyone happy. And I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, what could be more romantic? We're flying over the South Carolina countryside in a hot air balloon right before sunset. Yeah, I planned that out, right before sunset. And during this ride, I'm going to get down on one knee and ask my best friend to marry me. This is going to be incredible. Yeah, I was wrong. I was so wrong. First of all, hot air balloons have this huge gas burner that is extremely noisy. I mean, yeah, from the ground, they're like, oh, they're, they're so quiet and they just float by. No, when you're up there, like every 30 seconds, it's like, <laughs> and you're like, okay, never mind, I can't have a conversation with anybody. And then, like I said, it's a gas burner, which means it's very, very hot. And again, I picked August in the South to do this. So we all started to sweat, started to stink. I mean, I started to swink, not Angie. She smells like roses, like she always does. But it got, I mean, it was rough. And then on top of that, 
the basket is like teeny tiny. And there's Angie, me, and the pilot in there. And the pilot resembled Santa Claus. He, he was rather robust, had a big white beard. And um, I mean, it was such a small basket. Every time he moved, I, I would bump into him and his belly would f- shake like a bowl full of jelly. I mean, it was just, it was all, it was just, I was like, so difficult. There's no way I'm gonna get on a knee in this basket. And then I have to admit, I was afraid. I was afraid. I thought this so many times during that ride. I'm gonna pull the ring out and it's gonna get caught in my pants. It's gonna boop over the side and watch it fall a thousand feet to the ground. I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Not gonna do that. So um, needless to say, the, the balloon ride ended, Santa Claus left, and then I was able to ask Angie to marry me and she said yes. But have any of you ever had a day like that? Where you planned something out? I mean, it all added up in my head to be perfect. And then the day shows up and yeah, none of that happens. It, it, reality and what my perception did not match at all. But one thing I've learned is that wherever there is an object, there is a designer for that object. Whether it's a, a truck, whether it's a, a building, a train, a proposal, even a marriage, there's a mastermind behind every masterpiece. And uh, when it comes to, to marriage, it's no different. God is the mastermind of marriage. And he has a plan for how marriage works best. But the problem is, is we get overwhelmed as we try to understand God's design by what's in the world around us and all the the interference that we get. I mean, books, magazines, uh, music, movies, all have a different message for what marriage should be. And so many of us fall into a trap of looking everywhere but to the designer for how marriage should go. Now, if you're trying to understand marriage through the world's eyes, you will fail and it'll struggle. But there's a better way. There's the designer's way, which is God's way. So what is God's primary purpose for marriage? Now, I've heard many good reasons for marriage. Uh, companionship, you get, you get married so you, so you have someone to live life with. Uh, support, you know, life is difficult. When you get married, you got this person there with you who can support you. Uh, raising of children, you know, that's how we get married so we can have kids. And uh, all of those are, are good reasons, and many of them have some biblical basis to them, but I don't think they're the purpose for marriage. I think those are actually blessings that flow out of God's original purpose and plan for marriage. And so I want to take some time today to look at that. You see, all through Scripture, Jesus taught us in parables. And I believe that God uses marriage as a parable for us to learn about. You see, a parable is nothing more than an earthly story that we can understand that explains a spiritual principle. And so marriage, as we see it, is a picture of what God wants to show us. And so it's a parable that we're living in. And I believe that that primary purpose of marriage in that parable is one simple thing, that's to glorify God. It's to glorify God. And I believe there's three ways that we can glorify God in our marriages. First, Christian marriages are to reflect the God's image. Christian marriages are to reflect God's image. We're going to open up our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. So we're going back to the beginning and we're going to spend some time there. We're going to be between Genesis and John chapter 17. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip there and get those thumbs marked, or if you have your app and you need to scroll back and forth, that's where we're going to be. But we're going to start off in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice in that passage, the strong emphasis on image and likeness. You see, God creates them, male and female, as a unit to reflect him. In marriage, it takes both a man and a woman in oneness to truly reflect his image. You see, when we criticize our spouse or foster division and competition, we're actually reflecting the disunity of Satan and and dishonoring God. Now, on the other hand, when we recognize our purpose is to reflect the image of God, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit when we don't meet that standard. So why did God do it that way? Why create one being and then take part of that being and create a second differentiated yet complementary being? A being who is emotionally and in all other ways different, yet of his own substance. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. He says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that he, Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. <clears throat> you see, Adam almost the first time he saw Eve could be like, hey, it's me, but, it, but it's not me. It's, it's part of me, but it's different. And, and so we are kind of like, why did it happen that way? I mean, why did God do that? Well, if you think about it, it's just the sort of thing a trinity would do. If you remember, God is a trinity. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he's almost like he's a sort of a family unto himself. He's one being with three persons. And so God's plan was to create the family to reflect his image or likeness. Therefore, therefore, a married man or woman cannot completely realize the essence of their existence until they learn to exist with someone and for someone. Both relationship and communion are vital to this process. And so we see from Genesis 1 and 2 that God created woman from the side of man so that man would not be alone. Now, from the teaching of the New Testament, saints have discovered that he also created the church from the second Adam, which is Christ. For the same reason he created the church was for intimate fellowship. You see, back in the Genesis account, we know that the newly created Eve came from Adam. He said it was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he called her woman because she came from man. And so what is the reason then that a man and wife marry? Because woman was originally a constituent part of man. And when they marry, she returns to become one with him again. And so we see this full expression and design of God's image in human beings can be revealed through this union. So here we have another parallel between the Old Testament marriage of man and woman and the New Testament fulfillment of marriage with Jesus and his church. Eve was to reunite with her source and become one with him. And we as a church are to reunite with our source and become one with Christ. If you look at John 17, we'll see John 17 is a prayer that Jesus made on our behalf. It's called the the high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying in John 17. And There's a couple parts we're going to look at today. We're going to start with verses 21 through 23. And it says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You see, during marriage ceremonies, I will often reference the Trinity that exists in marriage. Just as God is in his Trinity, so also when we become husband and wife, we join into a threefold relationship. And we like to think of it as a triangle with, with Christ at the top of this triangle. And, and he's up there, and, and Angie and I got married, we, we're down here. And now our goal when we get married is to draw closer to each other, but there's a bunch of world and sin between us. And so what we find is that if I want to grow closer to Angie, I have to grow closer to Christ. And as she grows closer to Christ, it automatically brings us closer to each other. And as you continue on that journey through your marriage, you find yourself being drawn closer to Christ. She's drawn closer to Christ. And eventually you all end up together in this unity, this oneness, that's God's aim and goal for us. In fact, the marital union and covenant in all of its dimensions is meant to gloriously reveal the very image of God in ways that we can only begin to understand. But as Christians, married or single today, we are called to reflect God's image to those around us. That's one of the challenges he's given us. A second way I believe marriage glorifies uh, God is that Christian marriages are to represent how to be in the world and not of it. So early on in Genesis, we see God create a point of separation through marriage. Flipping back again to Genesis chapter 2, looking at verse 24, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, a man shall leave the world as he knows it and pursue a new life. I don't know if you've met anyone who got married but still chose his mom over his wife. It, it, that does not go well. It doesn't go well at all. I, I remember in the early years of our marriage that I would defend my parents' point of view over Angie's, even though I agreed with Angie. You see, I had this fear of trying to please my parents and always wanted them to be proud of me, and so I would let that get in the way of my marriage. Let me rephrase that for you. I was stupid, <clears throat> okay? And so uh, what I learned is that when I, when I took Angie to be my wife, there was a separation. It was no longer trying to blend the two, that she and I are now one, and we, we stand together, and we believe in things together, and it doesn't matter what other people think. And we have to own that, and that's what marriage is all about. It's the separation of what was to what is a new life and the life that God wants. And we are called as Christians to leave the world behind as well. Flipping back to John 17 in that prayer, uh, in earlier verses, verses 14 through 16, we read this. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, they are not of the world, just as I am not of this world. You see, we are no longer to love the things of this world even though we are still here. We are to fix our eyes on our new life in Jesus. All of us, regardless of our marital status, are called to be set apart. That word set apart actually is a definition of another biblical word that you may have heard. It's called holy. See, God has called us to be holy, set apart from that which is around us, to be different and finally, I think there's a third way that we see marriages glorifying God. 
And that's that Christian marriages represent God's plan for multiplication. Now, in Genesis, we see God tell Adam and Eve very clearly in the, in the first chapter, looking at verse 28. He says this, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God's desire was for them to multiply and increase, and they did. You know how I know they did? Because I'm looking at all of you, okay? So Adam and Eve multiplied. They fulfilled what God called them to. But unfortunately, along the way, they also sinned. And that sin was also multiplied. And so that brings us to the New Testament and the need of a Savior. And then we see the arrival of the second Adam, which is Jesus. And he too came to multiply And he chose the church, his Eve, to accomplish this. Uh, Many of you are familiar with this passage. It's called the Great Commission. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I want to capture two thoughts out of those two verses. The first is this command to to go forth, to to multiply, to make. See, God's called us to reproduce. God's called us to go forth. But as we're going forth and as we're multiplying and as we're making, we're to do it a certain way with authority and dominion. In other words, he's given us the responsibility to go out and do that. In marriage, we see this as parents. We have children, and we have authority over them. We have authority over them for one purpose, though, and we see that in Proverbs 22, 6, where we're to raise them up in the way they should go. We're to train them, and we're to lead them in the way they should go. Likewise, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, it was a similar of going forth and making disciples for his kingdom to train them and to lead them in the way they should go. So we see this this parallel that we're to make disciples for the kingdom. See, whether you are married or single, our lives are to reflect the glory of God. That is what we're called to do. Here's another way that we can look at this parable is, is how it goes about pointing us to God. We said that marriage is an earthly way that God is glorified. It's, it's that illustration of that. And we join God in the goal of magnifying his glory the way telescopes do and not the way microscopes do. Now, a microscope uh, magnifies an image by making tiny things look bigger than they really are. Uh, telescopes magnify by making unimaginably large things seem very small, look what they really are. In other words, when I take a microscope and I take some cells and I can look at them, I can't see those cells, but when I look at a microscope, I can see them. It takes something that's very insignificant and small and makes it much bigger than it really is. A telescope, however, takes something that's huge and enormous but appears small to us because usually distance. So take the moon, for instance. I mean, when you look at the moon in the sky, it's that big, right? I mean, you can like grab it with your hand. It's only that big. When you look at a moon through a telescope, it becomes so much greater, so much bigger. We can begin to see craters. We can begin to see footprints from Neil Armstrong on the moon. You know, we get to see things that we can't see, and we begin to have a better understanding of how immense and how large it is. 
And that's how marriages help us to move the appearance of God in people's minds closer to the reality that he is. You see, microscopes move the appearance of size away from reality. Telescopes move the appearance of size towards reality. If this is going to happen, the husband and wife both must see the glory of God for what it is. More real, more beautiful, and more precious than anything else in the universe. And seeing what God will mean, we favor him more, we treasure him more, we, we love him more, and we satisfy him more than anything else on this earth. And this is the way that we make God look as real and beautiful and valuable as he really is. And marriage represents that. So how do we take this parable of marriage and apply it to our lives today? Now, if you're married in this room, you find yourself in the middle of the story. It's not just a story about someone else. It's a story about you and you're living in it as it's being written. And so when we look at what God intended for marriage, it helps us to take those next steps. It helps us to grow and strengthen our marriage because we're looking to God and not to our spouse. We're looking to God and not to the world. We're looking to God, what we do next. If you're single in this room and not yet married, I hope that you look at the, the parable of marriage like you look at any other parable Jesus taught of. That I have something I want to share with you. I'm painting a picture and I want you to take what I'm teaching you and make yourself different than those around you. And I want you to tell people about me. And that's the purpose of parables in our life. You know, on May 13th, 1924, in the small town of James City, North Carolina, which turned out to be 17 miles from where I was born at Cherry Point Marine Corps Base, Herbert Fisher married his sweetheart, Zelmira. In 2008, they broke the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest marriage at 84 years. Herbert was 103, and Zomira was 101. Together, this couple survived the effects of World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Great Depression, the Civil Rights Movement, and 15 presidential administrations. Two years later, at the age of 105, Herbert passed away, but extending their record to 86 years, 290 days. Two years later, Zalmyra passed away also at the age of 105. They were asked uh, shortly after they broke the record, what was one thing you have in common that transcends everything else? And their response was this, We are both Christians and believe in God. Marriage is a commitment to the Lord. Can I pause just for a moment right there? They didn't say marriage is a commitment to my spouse. Marriage is a commitment to the Lord. And they ended, and we pray with and for each other every day. 86 years, 290 days. Now, believe it or not, Hallmark did not create marriage. Believe it or not, it is not a conspiracy between the floral industry and the catering industry to make more money, okay? Marriage was God's plan, is God's idea. This idea that two become one. Now, God created the universe, but his math can be a little strange sometimes. I mean, we homeschool and we teach our kids that one plus one equals two, but with God, one plus one equals one, And so how we rationalize that, many of us think that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. That if you give 50% and I give 50%, then that makes 100 and that's, that's complete. So we're good. Well, I have news for you today. 
It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's a 100-100 proposition. In other words, you give 100% to your spouse. I give 100% to my spouse. And together, that makes 100%. Because what's happening is not the addition of two people together. It's two people becoming one flesh. They're becoming as one. You see, marriage was designed to be a reflection of the saving love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says that husbands are to love their wives like the Christ loved the church. Do you know the end of that story, by the way? Any, any, anybody know that story? It's not good for husbands. Jesus dies. That's right. Jesus dies. He sacrifices his very life for his bride. You see, marriage is for real. It's the real deal because we are called to marriage to live sacrificially, to live submissively to one another. But when we do that, but when we live that kind of a life, we will more fully understand the relationship and the love that God has with us specifically. You see, supporting ourselves to God is radically dangerous and radically safe all at the same time. It's radically dangerous because it's a mission. He's told us to sacrifice. He's told us to die for our spouse. That's, that's dangerous. But it's also radically safe because he went first. And he says, I went to hell and back for you, and I got you. You're going to be okay. You see, it's this picture that God gave for each one of us to fully understand him better. I want you to hear this today. Whether you're married or single, it does not matter. I want you to hear this. Your completeness, your wholeness only comes from our creator. And any perception or something different is setting you up for disaster. You see, the Bible promises that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that doesn't come from marriage or singleness. That comes from God alone. If you make your spouse or the person you're dating the object of your devotion, you are setting them up for failure. You are asking them to meet a need that they were not designed to meet, but only God was designed to meet. Let me give you an illustration of this. When I was single, I had devised the perfect formula for my marital happiness. I even named it. I called it the three C's. Christian, cute, and a good cook. That, that's marital happiness right there. Um, I ended up having to add a fourth C called compromise. But um, when I first met Angie, believe it or not, she didn't have all three C's. Uh, she was a Christian, so check. Uh, she was very cute, so we'll double check that one. <clears throat> but she couldn't cook. I mean, y'all, that girl could not cook. Three words, hot dog burritos. Yeah, it was bad. It was bad. But that was a long time ago. And since then, she's learned and become a very good cook. So check. But marriage was never designed to fulfill you. And you don't put pressure on your spouse to do that. Only God was designed to fulfill you. Marriage was designed specifically around this idea of two becoming one. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. The sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is more fundamentally action than emotion. Let me read that last part again. That love is more fundamentally action than emotion. You see, love is not passive. Love pursues. 
when Angie and I was, were married, the pastor at a church in uh, South Carolina, Jeff Lutzko, pastor of Northside Church in Greenwood, who helped do our ceremony. My dad did it as well. But this is one thing he told us in our premarital counseling. He said, love is not a hole you, that you fall into and therefore not a hole you can climb out of. Love is a verb. It's a daily choice, an action you must take. Like, can you imagine what our lives would look like if we really behave like love was a choice and not an emotion or a feeling? How would this new perspective change the way you make your daily decisions? Or, or better yet, how would this new perspective change your relationships? Well, I have some good news for you today. Your staff here at Southcrest was to help answer that question for you. And so, men, if you can do me a favor, all the men in the room, if you have a cell phone, will you please pull that cell phone out? Yes, I'm giving you permission, men. This is men who are, who are married or dating. Let's refer men. If you pull your cell phone out, this is very important that you pull your cell phone out right now. While you're pulling that out, um, I want to share some information with you. Wednesday this week is this day called Valentine's Day. It's a big deal. So let me help you. Today is Sunday, which means you have between now and Tuesday to go to the store, get a card, pick up some chocolates, order some flowers. Let me give you a hint. If it has a cord, it's not for Valentine's Day, okay? And you're to go do this by Wednesday. But unfortunately, Wednesday is an awful day for a date. I mean, Wednesday's a church night. You don't go take people out when it's Jesus' night, you know? So like, how do you do this? Let me help you. Friday, the 16th, perfect, perfect day. Fridays are great date nights. Go out on Friday, and this is where we have your back. If you'll take your cell phone and go to the, your Southcrest app, and if you don't have the Southcrest app, you need to go ahead and get that now. I'm letting you know everything about the church is on there. But go to the Southcrest app, go to events, and on the 16th, you'll see date night, LaGrange and date night Noonan. So click on whichever one applies to you there, and that's right, date night. Here's what we're willing to do for you guys. On Friday, from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m., you bring your kids up to the church. We'll watch them for you. There's a small, small fee involved, but that fee is actually going to help students go to beach camp this summer. Students will be watching your kids. They're going to earn money for camp. You're going to go on a date. I mean, men, let me help you with this real quickly. When you do this, when you get on your phone and make this, even though she's sitting there right next to you, there's two things that are coming across her mind. You are thoughtful, and you are romantic. And if that's not enough, you're helping kids go to camp, that makes you charitable. So I'm telling you, get on there. Go ahead and do this. We, we got your back on this one. It'll be a great night. But we want you to make a choice to love your spouse. We want you to take a daily choice to say, you know what? You mean a lot to me. I want to show you. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to go on a date on Friday. You see, love is a choice, and we need to recognize that God is our first love. Now, it's important that we understand this. Since God was the first one to choose you and set you apart and love you, you must love God first even more than you love your spouse. You must worship and serve him first. And you must fight to keep God your number one priority. If you don't, you might undermine the very foundation of your marriage. You see, this reality that God is our number one and that my spouse is my number two puts things in the right perspective. It puts our priorities in order. C.S. Lewis in a poem put it this way. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, 
I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. You see, long before your spouse ever chose you, God chose you. Long before your spouse ever noticed you, ever set you apart from the crowd, God chose you. Long before your spouse loved you, God loved you first. You see, Jesus made a choice in a garden moments before he was arrested. He knew what love was going to cost him. He knew what his love for Pete Sugar was going to cost him. He knew what his love for each and every one of you was going to cost him. And in that moment, he made a choice. He said, not my will, but God's will be done. And that choice, that choice changed everything. You see, because of that choice that he made to die for my sins, to hang on that cross in in pain and agony, all for what? For love. This same love that we see represented in marriage, this sacrificial love, so that we could be together with him in heaven forever. He is extending his love to each one of us. We just have to accept his love and love him back. Now, many of you in this room, in LaGrange, watching online, you've made this decision to follow Christ. But there's some of you here today who have not made that. You've been thinking about it. You've been around him. But you need to understand who he is in your life and that he's number one. And today, you need to make that choice. It's your choice. But that's what love is. Will you pray with me?